Hello, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and welcome to this special edition, this nine-part series of me interviewing experts in the field of BIPOC health, food security, food sovereignty. If you have listened to the previous episodes, this is episode number five of this nine-part series that I get to submit as part of my dissertation by portfolio to Royal Roads University to be able to complete my PhD research that I've been doing for the last seven years. Um, you come by it honestly. How can one in a sea of misapprehension automatically know, uh, like thread your way through all that, you know, misdirection, much of which is unintentional. Some of it's very intentional. The stuff that you see on television, television is, is a source of massive amounts. Te television and some segments of the internet are a massive source of misdirection they create the impression that we have the answers we need and all we have to do is execute. Mm. Well, that isn't, that isn't reality. And the fact that we would accept that it is reality creates these problems that we're, we're struggling with now. I mean, now this episode is with Dr. Warren Bell. And Dr. Well is Dr. Warren Bell. He's a medical doctor, family physician who lives in Salmon Arm, British Columbia, running an active practice which integrates conventional and alternative and complementary remedies. We need more doctors like Dr. Bell working in our clinics, working in our communities to be able to help us truly heal from all of these chronic diseases that we are faced with. Now, for decades, um, Dr. Warren Bell has been concerned about and involved in issues of social development and the environment, as well as the peace and anti-nuclear movement, global health and development, and the integration of healing modalities of all kinds. He does not discriminate. He is discerning. He is looking at all sides of healing versus just the, the research and information he was given directly in med school, which is only a fraction of the knowledge that is out there that helps us to not only prevent, but manage and reverse chronic diseases and other health conditions. He has written and spoken in many settings on these and related issues and participated in a number of projects, both locally and nationally. For 10 years, he wrote a weekly newspaper column entitled Global Health, and he is the past president of the Physicians for Global Survival and the past founding president of the Canadian Association for Physicians for the Environment. Now, if you don't know about those organizations, I encourage you to get involved, become a member, join their events, get on their newsletter, because you are going to learn a wealth of knowledge that is not being taught to you every single day in all the different areas of your life like it really should be. So Dr. Bell is the past president of the Association of Complementary and Integrative Physicians of BC, that's British Columbia, where we get to live and play. And Dr. Bell is actively involved at, as, uh, at present in advocating for food security and food sovereignty. And for five years, he's been the president of the medical staff of the Shushwap Lake General Hospital. 
So let's welcome Dr. Bell. You all know what to do. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your loved ones and then go back and listen to the previous four episodes of this nine-part series. Thank you so much and let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and today we are jumping into yet another, what I know is going to be an exciting interview with Dr. Warren Bell, who's going to bring his knowledge, expertise, wisdom, and lived experience to this research. Again, the research question in which I get to produce a series of 12 podcasts The research question is, what are the barriers that BIPOC, Black Indigenous people of color face in accessing the quality of foods that are capable of reversing lifestyle chronic degenerative diseases? So welcome, Dr. Warren Bell, to this research and this show. Delighted to be here, Nicolette. So Warren, first, let's jump in and just tell me where in the world you live. Let our audience know where you're sitting right now. I live in a small town of about 18,000 souls in South Central British Columbia. The name of the town is Salmon Arm. In French, that doesn't translate very well, Le Bras du Saumon. But uh, it is referring to the fact that this town is on a lake that has an arm called the Salmon Arm. And it's uh, right next to, in fact, it run, there's a river that runs through it called the Salmon River, which at one point was uh, endowed with a massive sockeye salmon run uh, that no longer exists because of human intervention. And uh, it's a small bucolic community with agriculture and forestry at one time or another as its major um, Uh, means of support. Prior to that, it was um, populated by a very active population of Shkwepik people. Shkwepik people uh, are part of Interior Salish, uh, sort of linguistic group, Um, and they are are a major presence in our community and becoming more visible as time goes by. Nice. Thank you very much for that introduction to Salmon Arm and Um, I've been there before, played a basketball tournament when I was in grade 11 in Salmon Arm and stayed with some billets up there. It was very exciting. And everybody here remembers that. Yes, I'm sure they do. (laughs) So this interview is going to be interesting because here I am inquiring about what the, you know, what are the barriers that BIPOC communities face, yet you are a lovely, wealthy, older white man speaking on behalf of some of these topics. But so anybody who's watching and listening to this show, and if you've listened to the previous um, research interviews, we've been researching predominantly indigenous, um, indigenous individuals and people of color. Now you are the first individual to come on. The reason I invited you is because I want to take people back. You and I met at a conference called Building Sustainable Communities in Kelowna back in like 2008 or nine. We both spoke on a panel there on um, the need to eliminate reduced pesticides use and their need for pesticide um, policies. And I was smitten by you, by your brain, by your care for the environment, for the fact that you had started the um, 
CAPE, which is the Canadian Association for Physicians for the Environment. And because of the recent interviews that you did with me having you on um, the radio show, which we'll share those, that, those two interviews with the audience. Now, you are also somebody who identifies as, what did you say to me at the end of one of our interviews? You said you are a reformed <laughs> colonist. Reformed colonizer. Colonizer. Yeah. Yes. yes. But you know a lot about these topics because you're also somebody who's very aware. You are somebody who's thought about colonization deeply. You are deeply connected with the Indigenous communities and the elders and the peoples in your community. You care deeply about the environment. Um, you are thinking about the seven generations ahead and the seven generations behind, which for some people, and I have read this in many books written by Indigenous peoples, that to be Indigenous means, by some definition, to care about the seven generations ahead, regardless of the color of your skin <laughs> and your race or ethnicity. So let's start off by me asking you, just point blank, the research question. What are some of these barriers that you see that BIPOC communities face? <laughs> Well, before I answer the question, Nicolette, I must confess, uh, first of all, I'm very grateful to be included in, in your research project and that I have an unavoidable sense of um, being a bit of an interloper into a world which at the superficial level I have no qualification for because I'm not from a BIPOC background and um, I therefore... I'm not sort of, in some respects, a suitable subject. But on the other hand, um, I have done a lot of thinking. I have been in medical practice for um, about 46, seven years. And over the years have seen a lot going on in our community and being very interested and curious about what's going on in the larger world um, as a sort of constant in my life. That's led me to a lot of experiences, uh, coupled with the fact that in my practice, I've also incorporated uh, insight-oriented psychotherapy. So that I do in-depth uh, conversations with people and explore their reality, as well as doing uh, the show you mentioned called Food Conversations on the local community radio station. And I've been involved in journalistic exercises as well over the years. But the question you ask, I think, is a very important question. Uh, because it addresses something that the human community is just starting to understand, and that is that there is nobody excluded excluded from the family. Uh, that's a very difficult concept. People can it's easy to say, but it's a difficult concept to put into practice because we are laden with narrow thinking, prejudices, biases, uh, imperfections in our understanding of the world around us, and some of them are very habitual and have been around for. Uh, literally thousands and thousands of years, they're incorporated into our uh, central nervous system, certain kinds of responses, the, the famous fight or flight response. And that's led us to uh, tolerate and, and, in, and create divisions within societies, human communities that uh, have apparently served us well in the past sometimes, but don't serve us well at all now. And one of the reasons is that we're facing existential threats 
of our own creation, things like the climate crisis, uh, massive social inequity, uh, huge pollution and overconsumption of natural resource problems. These issues have now, they're now hitting on us and we are the only creatures on earth who can resolve them. Uh, we need the help of all the other creatures, but we need to take the initiative to resolve these problems. So getting back to your question, which I think, as I said, is a very important one, the barriers to BIPOC communities accessing quality food, I, I would divide them into two categories. There's a general category of problems, and that is that the kind of food that would really serve them in terms of health and enjoyment and enhancing all of the qualities that make us uh, productive and, and content human beings, those kinds of foods are not widely available in this part of the world and in many other parts of the world. Uh, the reason being that we haven't had an interest in producing foods of that sort for, for probably about 75 to 100 years in particular. Uh, there's been other, you know, factors before that, but the main thrust of reducing the availability of healthy foods or replacing them with not very healthy foods has been going on for certainly since Second World War and some years before that. So that's a general reality. And then there's a general reality that I mentioned briefly earlier, and that's the tolerance of massive unbelievably huge gaps in the material well-being and security of some people versus some other people. We tolerate billionaires, multi-billionaires, even now trillionaires living on the planet next door to people who barely have uh, enough money to buy the essentials of their daily life and never have a reserve because they're, they're access to material resources is so starkly limited. So those are general issues that affect the entire population, the human population of the planet. Then there are particular issues for the BIPOC communities, and those are twofold. One is uh, the marked and still extant ability of the, the dominant populations in many communities to be negative and uh, have pejorative attitudes towards those who are not the dominant community. And BIPOC communities are not the dominant communities in North America, but they are substantive, very meaningful and important communities. But the uh, to put a term on it that is widely used, racism, is is extant and living and it's it's an outgrowth of ancient patterns in human nature um, to be anxious and suspicious about people who are different from you and um and then and then eventually find out that you don't need to be that way but that process of learning that you don't need to be anxious and nervous uh takes time and in the absence of sort of formal protocols for making sure that that goes well we don't do very well at that, especially in this part of the world. Then there is the excessive uh, material deprivation that is found in uh, BIPOC communities because of this marginalization from the mainstream that is only now, for the first time in my lifetime, starting to be 
consciously addressed. Uh, prior to that, it was unconsciously accepted. Mm -hmm. And it was easy to be racist. It was easy to be biased and prejudiced um, because you looked around you and saw other people being biased and prejudiced and racist alongside you. And you said, well, I guess that's what everybody does. But that isn't what everybody does, nor is it what everybody should be doing. And in fact, as time goes by, we are understanding that it's a fundamentally destructive position to have uh, in one's community. I so really like that you um, address this um, just so point blank, because in the previous interviews, um, it wasn't explicitly said. And we know that, for example, within the medical system, there has been many, many cases of, you know, blatant racism um, and, and actually, you know, individuals being denied care um, just because of the fact that they were indigenous, that they're black, that they were a person of color. And we know that that still happens today. But yeah. then also just racism in general are, and if I interpret this correctly from you, if we think of anybody else as being lesser than, then we may not have the political will, the interest to want to support any communities in, right. you know, or, or look together to try and find, you know, solutions to all of the effects of colonization that it's had on all of the communities, but generally with the people who are, are, I'd say the most um, oppressed. The, the basic ancient pattern in us is the so-called fight or flight response. When you see something that you don't understand, then your interpretation of it somebody you don't recognize your interpretation is to to be a little anxious and to have this sort of vague feeling of fight or flight the sort of sympathetic mm -hmm. response it's it's well established in us and it's been there as a survival instinct for for not just millennia but but thousands of millennia um you know humans have evolved over about two million years in terms of developing a form and the brain size etc and it's always been part of us um when it then in our communities today um leads to what you just made mention of which is which is the notion that the person you're not familiar with is less than you that's a huge additional uh layer which has nothing to do with the fight or flight response it's got everything to do with learned behavior at the hands of communities that have at one point or another started to dominate other communities and you dominate those who you uh, you know you tell your your comrades that they're less than us will overcome them that's actually really recent that's maybe um uh 10 to 12,000 years so two million years of human history and then only 10 to 12,000 years since the so-called neolithic revolution and you can look it up on on uh wikipedia um, also called the agricultural revolution. And so it's in, intimately tied into food and where we source our food. But that's when we started to live in fixed communities. We didn't move around and forage. All of our ancestors prior to that all foraged. They took what Mother Nature offered and accepted her gifts with gratitude. But then starting in uh, you know, the, the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates River, rivers um that's when uh, there was a massive forward movement if you want to call it or a sideways movement if you're not so sure uh into 
living in one place, relying on mostly grains and pulses and domestic animals for your food supply, gave you great security through the bad seasons, the, you know, the winter, the, the time when things didn't grow well, but it meant that you weren't moving around, so you didn't get as much physical <laughs> exercise, you might say, but also you got food that wasn't as high quality. You got, that's when dental caries started to uh, appear, cavities in people's teeth in the dental record started to appear at about that time as the quality of the nutrition re was reduced, but the security of the nutrition was mar markedly increased. So the big population explosion, um, humans started to do the things that we do now in spades today. We live in one place, we, we accumulate uh, material wealth or don't, uh, and we have these enormous disparities women's um, uh, place in society was subjugated to that of men, a uh, very different arrangement. Prior to that, in um, all the origin communities, uh, women and men both had, uh, they were different, but they had, they had status, they had importance in the community. Everyone had importance in the community. So egalitarian relationships, the equality between men and women, and the need to have everybody on board those were qualities in our foraging days for most of the two million years, and then we then we fell into this way we're doing it now. And now we've got it to the point where it's it's wrecking the planet, it's tearing human society apart, and we absolutely have to regain some of the values that were present through most of our existence on the planet. That's a little canned history, but it's something that influences my thinking because my my first interest was archaeology and ancient history and paleolithic human experience and now that i think i understand better and many people as well realize that our ancestors had the exact same capacities for understanding as we do and were absolutely brilliant at managing their lives in the natural world we have to go back and look at what they did and that's where our indigenous friends and neighbors have a lot to teach us um, and and having them in marginalized separate communities is a huge and uh, a huge tragedy that must be reversed because it's uh, it's a tragedy for everybody and the same applies to all people of color uh, uh, it, it's it's the same thing we all are here and we all have a useful role to play period mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. And that is a huge part of why I chose to do narr narrative inquiry, where uh, the participants, you know, like they could have a medical degree like yourself and um, have studied, you know, we, we are fortunate, you, myself, we've had the opportunity to go to school, um, to go to university, to go on to post-secondary education. Um, and not all people have, but it's also could be a curse in itself because we're only taught a body of knowledge that somebody else determined was important. And then what gets left out are the voices of a lot of these, you know, BIPOC folks who didn't have the opportunity to go to university because, because of the way our history has unfolded and we have taken those opportunities, out, you know, well, just not made them available. One of the things that I have always thought uh, is that there's a great virtue when you go for an examination in one of these uh, venerated uh, educational institutions is to cram at the last minute. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is that most of the stuff you're learning and have to regurgitate in those examination processes 
is irrelevant to life. Uh, but so the less time you spend on learning it and the faster you forget it, uh, the better. And I've, I've certainly experienced that all the way from, you know, <laughs> grade school to uh, undergraduate training, uh, medical training. You learn an incredible amount of stuff that is not all that relevant. And you don't learn what is relevant, which will stay with you for a long time. You just get exposed to a whole bunch of stuff in a sort of scattershot fashion uh, without any sense of why this one principle underlies everything you're going to be learning. Mm -hmm. uh, a principle like um, some of the basic spiritual uh, principles, you know, love thy neighbor, uh, do not mistreat mother nature. Mm -hmm. uh, were taught to us by our parents and, and our elders um, you know, a few thousand years ago, but they aren't taught. And, and that was because they were survival tactics. Everybody counted because in a pinch, you didn't know who was going to save your life on any given day if if it was under threat. And we you didn't know what Mother Nature was going to do next. You sort of had a rough idea and you probably pretty good at reading the, the signs as to what was coming, but you couldn't do anything about it if there was going to be a massive storm or uh, even even earthquakes. Um, animals are very sensitive to earthquake premonitions and, and pre-tremors. And when you see them running, you run too, <laughs> because they're telling you something. So we've, we've disconnected ourselves from distinguishing between fundamental and important issues and just a lot of blah, blah, blah information. And that's made it very hard for many people. And it's also allowed some of the bad habits we've had, such as marginalizing certain communities on very superficial characteristics like skin color, which is about the dumbest thing to categorize people by. I just want to mention that there's research showing that the genetic differentiation between siblings of the same sex in the same family is far greater than the differentiation between people of different skin colors. It's such a trivial uh, characteristic of the human frame that to have it as a hang-up by which, and, and a criterion, you might say, by which you subdivide the human community is scientifically uh, ridiculous. Well, I, yeah, and that's an important point to bring up because, you know, as I was mentioning with this research, it's having these multiple voices from people that have degrees, don't have degrees, people that have lived experience, you know, which is just as valuable as, um, you know, any university degree, you know, in having spent years doing, you know, academic, re academic research. And so I like that you bring this up because our education system is definitely one of the reasons we see these disproportionate rates, but, uh, you know, uh, within BIPOC communities, you know, they're, they're battling diabetes, heart disease, um, you, you know, cancers, everything at four to eight times the higher rates, the non-Indigenous communities here in Canada. And, but when you read the medical literature, when you read our policies developed by government, it says that the reason behind their diseases being higher is because of obesity, alcoholism, <laughs> lack of exercise. All of those arguments have gone out the window with the Truth and, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, I despair when I hear people say about our Indigenous 
friends and friends and neighbors um they should just get over it you know yes. you know it's it's in the past um that like many sort of little truisms that we have uh you made your bed so lie in it uh you know uh, let bygones be bygones um, or, or i didn't do it <laughs> yes so I why wasn't there. I, <laughs> yes that I happened so directly. long ago <laughs> astonishingly how astonishingly how uh many among us are uninterested in historical patterns they don't say uh this has been going on for a long while they just said this happened yesterday and i saw it uh which is which is all right uh if you learn something from what happened yesterday but if you say well this was only the seven million four hundred and seventy-five thousandth time it's happened, and then it sort of looms a little larger in your consciousness. Why has it been going on for so long? What is the problem with us doing this same thing over and over again? And then you realize, especially with, I mean, just just to use the the um, the residential school system. I mean, it was planned and executed um about 170 years ago you know in the 1880s uh and uh and and earlier and it was but and it was the outgrowth of a long long extending pattern of thinking on the part of settlers in this continent that they were they were the cat's meow they were superior they knew all these sort of things and really all they had was bigger guns bigger weapons uh beyond that they didn't really have much to offer. We we didn't have much to offer. My ancestors, uh, we came over here um, <clears throat> filled with enthusiasm for our own ideas, and uh, misidentified the people we met as primitive, and that's because we formally and and relentlessly disavowed any understanding of what they're doing. Now there were individuals on both sides who had greater understanding. But the the general response was to dismiss the populations of this country, which was uh, only really partly possible because we brought viruses mm -hmm. that, that knocked them off, that actually destroyed up to ninety percent of the population of the Americas, um, and made it seem that it was a big, wide open space just waiting for us to have fun in, and that illusion has has is still alive today. We brought civilization to the Americas. No, we brought germs mm -hmm. that were destructive and made us unable to really learn from the civilizations that were here already that had a lot to teach us. And and that word civilization is so interesting where, you know, you look at someone and say, well, you're not a civilized being or you're a civilized being. But here we are living in a society where we have they just announced cancer rates are at epidemic highs for individuals 50 years and younger now mm -hmm. they've you know we have people dying of food related diseases mm -hmm. from lack of nutrition but mm -hmm. that is civilized we have people dying from the 80,000 pollutants that are being released into our environment every single year causing the cancers and these diseases but we call that civilized and so you know what you say about just understanding our history I also just love it understanding terminology like where did this term civilization even come to be and being civilized and and why are people not questioning what that is 
It's remarkable that the term environment, just to use other terms that have changed their meaning. I mean, the word gay, <laughs> there's mm -hmm. an ad from the 1950s and 40s of people going on cruises saying, have a gay old time. Now you say gay, well, you know exactly who you're talking about certain sexual orientation. Well, the word environment up until very recently, uh, the late 50s, early 60s, ba basically meant um, what you had around you. And that usually meant if you live in a city you, or your farm or whatever, you had, you know, a building, you had other kinds of structures, you had roads, you know, you had all these things. And we really only looked at the environment that we'd made up. It was the built environment. Uh, the word ecology, which, you know, comes from Greek meaning sort of study of your home, um, was was not even in existence as a term widely used until about 30 or 40 years ago. So we've we've started to wake up very late <clears throat> to the fact that we have forgotten a huge amount of really important information about our planet and only started to name those parts uh, recently and name the qualities in the human community that uh, and, and explore the qualities, the, the names we use for these qualities uh, very recently as well. We just haven't, uh, we haven't understood what we're doing. We're sort of awakening. We're awakening overall as a, as a, as a species from a kind of unconscious state. Doesn't mean that we are always doing bad things, but we just didn't understand what we were doing very well. And so now we're, we're going through a very rapid, you know, we're in grade one of a, uh, <laughs> long educational program, uh, learning the basic vocabulary about the world around us and, and discovering that a lot of terms we used are nonsensical. They just mm -hmm. have no meaning. They are they are widely used, but, but when you start to parse them, when you pull them apart, uh, what you find is a basis, uh, as they say, a, a firm basis of ignorance, um, you know, putting them where they are, mm -hmm. responsibility. So I, I, I truly think, and I think the only reason I have any legitimacy as part of your research program is because not, not of great virtue on my part, but because I'm, I'm learning, I'm a student of this educational process that's being imposed on us by our own past behavior. We mm -hmm. just have to do the things that we used to aspire for thinking they're good things to do now we have to do them in order to survive so it's not just you know you know we hope you change your mind one day it's more like if you don't change your mind in a short period of time we're just going to have to leave you off the boat and mm -hmm. you're going to have to stay on that little island of ignorance where you've been living for a long time well and that is one of the other reasons why immediately i recognized you as someone that needed to be part of this research is because you are curious you are critical. You're a critical thinker. You have a huge heart. Like your heart is massive, you know, almost as right. big as your, your brain, <laughs> that intellectual brain that has the capacity to hold a lot of information. Um, you have the historical knowledge, which is also really important. So I could easily have any other individual that is indigenous or a person of color, but they haven't thought critically about their own history. There's many people that I meet that don't contemplate their own existence 
on this earth and why, for example, you know, you know, their mother just died of diabetes and their, you know, father's battling cancer and they're not seeing that relationship to our history too. A lot of people I talk to, they don't even know what the word colonization is. They actually are like, what do you mean by colonization and decolonization so it has nothing really to do with the color of our skin at the end of the day it really has to do with the only way we are ever going to see this epidemic of chronic disease that we are currently living in and to try and find solutions is if we move past the superficial reasons the superficial causes behind these diseases which is not obesity yes obesity and diabetes are linked obesity and other chronic diseases are linked, but it's not obesity. It's not alcoholism. It is not lack of exercise that are contributing to these diseases. It's a much bigger systemic issue. And until we get to the root of that, we are never going to ever be able to find solutions and put an end to that, to this epidemic. Specifically with respect to indigenous humans, uh, which in this country means people who lived here before we arrive. Uh, there is growing evidence that many of the, uh, apart from the, the food that, of course, we now have so altered with um, industrial processes that it's scarcely recognizable at times. But one of the other inherent, uh, possibly even genetic, qualities of people who are indigenous is that they have lived in an environment where every year pretty much you went through a fast <laughs> mm-hmm. you went through a fast because mother nature said time for your annual fast and uh and uh, you know straightened re- reduced the food supply uh, as the natural cycles of nature went on and you had to and your body was adapted to being able to survive that kind of um, privation uh, far more effectively than the bodies of people who lived in European cities where the food wasn't good, but it was it was lurking everywhere uh, all year long. Um, in addition, their capacity for physical exertion, uh, those who d- survived well were were enormously, um, they had enormous physical capacities, and there are many, many narrative accounts of of indigenous individuals um, who performed acts of physical endurance and and exertion and and recovery from illness. Um, Just obviously mother nature said, if you want to live in my town, which is trees and prairies, then you're going to have to be able to endure certain things. Of course, that meant a mutual relationship of respect People, you know, the human population respected Mother Nature, and uh, and Mother Nature respected you if you followed her rules. Uh, we just drifted away from that, got this proud, this this state of hubris, universal hubris that we had control over Mother Nature. Huge mistake, huge and ongoing mistake um, that that needs to be unlearned. We have to unlearn some of these so-called found truths because they're not true they're based on inadequate understanding and and i think we have enough information we have enough knowledge to make them the important changes we're going to get gather more knowledge but the important thing we have to do is start sharing the deeper truths about what's going on and that means we attain a consensus and i am very much 
in favor of consensus formed from groups that have very different people in them that are very different from one another in in many ways for example i've learned uh, a tremendous amount from my patients well i'm supposed to be the doctor the word doctor in latin means teacher yeah i'm the big hot shot who knows everything and i tell people what they need to know uh not true absolutely not true i have had patients come not just have illnesses from which I have learned by going to my textbooks and reading up on them, but have told me things about the world and their, as, their understanding of it that have made me stop short and say, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, thank you. That's very helpful. In other words, it's a two-way street in every conversation, <laughs> whether it's, you know, the king talking to a peasant or a person of this community or color or sexual orientation, all these things that we are now saying we are not going to judge people by, well, we have to just stop judging people by them. Not, not just say you shouldn't judge people by that, but actually stop doing it and start doing something different, which is bringing people in, approaching them, engaging in conversations. One of the reasons that I've been involved in insight-oriented psychotherapy for many years is because it gives me an opportunity to understand deeply what's going on inside a person. They, generally speaking, heal themselves by coming to understand by me, you know, probing what it is that's troubling them if they're you know they don't they don't come to me if they're feeling good, they come because they're troubled <laughs> and having a bad time. <laughs> Occasionally people come and say, how are you? I'm feeling fine. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, well, you shouldn't be here then, which is a joke, right? Anyway, getting to see people in, in depth means that you see the commonalities that are there in every single person and probably relate to the commonalities in other life forms as well, like memory, like uh, learned responses like the ability to navigate and to learn while you're alive. There's a wonderful movie called My, My Friend the Squid or something of that nature. And I might have the title wrong, but it's about a man in South Africa who is having a dark time in his life and decides he's going to go swimming in the ocean every day. Oh, Just, My Friend the Octopus. My Friend the Octopus. Yes, beautiful movie. Beautiful film Yes, about him engaging in a relationship with an octopus, a, a, a small sort of five, four pound animal in the ocean, you know, a crustacean that we would consider not to have the insights that we do and filming the relationship because he was a filmmaker, uh, having somebody film it. And you see the octopus in him engaging in uh, meaningful interactions where the octopus, not only with him, but in its environment, shows itself to be learning. It only has a two-year two lifespan. I mean, humans at two years, they need a lot of help. But this octopus survives an attack by a shark by some ingenious, rapidly developed te techniques that, you know, uh, not every octopus learns, but this octopus did. And then at the very end of the film, the octopus, as it's about to die, swims up to him and embraces him 
I mean, that's eight arms, not just two arms. That's eight arms of embrace. Um, in a touching film, a touching scene that had tears in my eyes, because it was so beautifully mm -hmm. <laughs> exemplifying what we need to learn. We need to learn that stop dismissing other people, other creatures, other ways of doing things. Just get off that that narrow, narrow, compressed way of looking at the world around us and, and embrace the richness that's there. And that, of course, applies to food. Good Lord, certainly applies to food. Certainly applies to food, for sure. And this is, you know, I love, I love where this is going. And it's hard for me not to, you know, take what you're saying and then morph it into what I want it to be. But oh. what I'm hearing, so... <laughs> But what I'm seeing are these patterns um, in in through all these beautiful stories that you're telling and this information, rich information that you're bringing forth is a we're seeing an entirely different education system is needed to really overcome and you know these barriers that are in place right now. So there is you know knowledge about racism, about our history, about um, you know, the, like needing that spiritual connection that you talked about that we did have, you know, decades ago, hundreds of years ago. Um, I wrote down here, Elders University, even though you didn't say that, but it just made me think, like, what if we just took away all the professors that are out there in universities and we replace them all with elders, Indigenous peoples, people who have that spirit, you know, what would our world look like? What would, you know, the solutions to climate change look like? Um, you know, historians, so really knowing art, like most kids go through school being like, I hate history. I was one of the, I was like, I hate history. They made it so boring. And like, yeah. we had to remember the dates of like when wars began and who was president or prime minister at the time. Like, really, is that the history? Is that the chosen history that, right. you know? Our, our founding fathers declared would need to be in our education system. There's also that, you know, that, you know, and right now I would have to say it's a learned respect for mother nature. Like we have to unlearn and relearn that. There's also this, what you mentioned about when you interact with your patients, that co-learning, that reciprocity, that giving and taking, it's not just you force feeding information onto them, but it requires that. So, um, well, let, let's talk about how we assess a person's qualifications for a particular kind of job or a position in some kind of organization. First of all, we look at their credentials. What are their credentials? There's pieces of paper that say this person went to this other institutional place and spent time and went through a process of memorization, learning, being told stuff and saying, yes, sir, no, sir. And then at the end of it, uh, produced evidence that they had learned the things that these people in this organization were teaching, and then they get a certificate. Now, the information they're gaining is nothing to do personally, like, did you undergo a transformation in your attitudes about the world? It's more like, did you remember all these things about subject X, Y, or Z? Then you take those pieces of paper to this new situation where you're being assessed and you say, here's my qualifications. The person reads them and says, oh, yes, this is good. This is good. This is good. And then they ask some basic questions like, you know, do you want to be part of our organization? What do you bring to our organization? And in the space of maybe half an hour or an hour of questions back and forth and questions and answers, um, 
they they sort of say, well, I I kind of like this person, so let's take them on. Uh, well, contrast this with a narrative from a book called The Shaman's Apprentice. It's about a, a an American eth, uh, ethnobotanist who went to the Amazon rainforest uh, because he wanted to learn about the lore of plants and animals that um, shamans, healers use in that setting. And the night before he was to go by, by dugout canoe into the depths of the rainforest, he started to have nightmares uh, of a jaguar attaching, attacking him. And every time he fell asleep, the jaguar was there going at him. He got hardly any sleep at all. Anyway, he said, well, maybe I'm just nervous about this whole thing. So hopped in the canoe, off he went, you know, uh, for three quarters of a day and into the heart of the rainforest. And the next day he met um, one of the revered uh, healers, shamans, who was there to be his guide if the shaman thought he was an acceptable person. So they didn't talk a lot. There were a few questions through a translator. Um, but there was a lot of time when they were just kind of sitting, kind of looking at each other. And then, you know, questions that didn't seem to relate to any of his expertise. They just related to who he was and what he wanted to do. And the shaman was watching him carefully throughout this whole interview. And at the end, he sort of grunted something. And the translator said, well, he says he'll take you on. And and then the shaman kind of leaned back on his got a bit of a smile on his face and said, said how did you sleep last night? And um, the ethnographer said, uh, oh, it was terrible. I, every time I fell asleep, there was this jaguar was attacking me. I got hardly any sleep at all. And the shaman kind of had this little smirk and he said, well, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> now, Western science doesn't know how to categorize this experience. But the American university-trained um, uh, ethnobotanist, that's somebody who studies the, the plants that are used in a particular culture to do the things you want to do, food, her healing herbs, that kind of thing. Uh, he was being assessed by somebody who has no university training, mm -hmm. is considered, you know, by the culture of the ethnobotanist to be sort of quote primitive but had capacities at the human level uh that were extraordinary and who was paying attention to all sorts of features of of his american visitor that the american visitor had no idea about and could not reproduce with if he wanted to or not now western science would say how could um, this shaman affect the dreams of a, you know, white Anglo-Saxon uh, fella from the United States of America? Well, I'll tell you, the ethnobotanist had no doubt that this was really happening and that this guy had done it. <laughs> and so we, we need a system where we assess people, and this is widely used in many other cultures where elders assess a new aspirant somebody who wants to join their group and they don't assess them on the basis of uh 
sort of formally learned knowledge, they assess them on basis of character. Yeah. Internal, the presence internally of qualities that will make them suitable for the work that's to be done. Quite different. It's 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 yeah. it's a more subtle process. It's a more intimate process. It involves connecting in ways that that we're just beginning. We know it happens in our culture. Yeah. We know that you know you sit down with somebody and you you sense that they're on the same wavelength as you are. Mm -hmm. We don't use that as a way of judging, and we don't develop qualities of acumen in ourselves that enable us to to do that well. We don't have the the advice of elders. It's interesting in the um, Kung people in the Kalahari Desert, um, people carry their elders because as they get very old, they, they're not able to walk long distance. So they literally carry their elders to the places they need to go because they want them to be available to them for as long as possible with all the knowledge they've acquired from their entire life of living in the, the ecosystem of the Kalahari Desert, which is quite a challenging ecosystem. If you know what you need to know, you'll do well. If you don't know, you're going to run into a you know metaphorical brick wall in no time at all we have so much to learn from other people so much to learn so why do why do bipoc communities face uh barriers in accessing the accessing the quality of foods that are capable of reversing lifestyle chronic degenerative diseases they face problems because we don't give it to ourselves and we really don't allow them access to it because we put material barriers. We don't give them access to the support systems that we have. And we don't listen to them when we say when they say to us, well, this might work better. This might, this, this is what we would like to do. We say, no, we're giving you something that you need. And you shouldn't be telling us what's the right thing. There's um an organization called the Canadian um the Canadian Society for International Health. And I became aware of it back in the 80s. And I followed its activities for a number of years, working in international settings all around the world. The day I first went to one of their meetings was when they advertised that they were going to learn mutually from the people they were, quote, helping. Mm -hmm. Because those people they recognized helped them. So people in the society, which was based in Canada, in Ottawa, formed a big circle at this meeting. And all there were representatives of the communities and, and societies that they were offering support to there, telling them, well, that support you gave us didn't work very well, but this support was okay. <laughs> and the people in the Canadian Society for International Health were listening. They were actually listening and saying, oops, oh, I wish we hadn't done that, instead of saying, but but you don't understand, we have the right answer. It's like giving powdered milk to, into, into a culture as a food source that's uh, lactose intolerant. You know, that was powdered milk was, was handed out in the Middle East and Asia for years and years and years, decades, to, to people who were absolutely dominantly lactose intolerant. intolerant yeah. 
they lack the enzyme lactase to digest it. And actually, many people in this part of the world are that way as well. Oh, yeah. And uh, and that idea that yes, we're giving you something you need, and if you get sick from it, my um, my stepmother was a was Japanese, is Japanese, and um, she was there when the Americans after the war brought in wheat and milk in a culture that doesn't drink uh, milk at all, doesn't use dairy products really in any form, the little meat, but it's not much. And um, rice is the, is the dominant grain. And she said it was absolutely horrible. We had to eat bread and drink mm -hmm. milk, like, you know, children on the other side of the Pacific. And it was, it was, it was degrading. It was degrading to be, you know, told this is what you will now do because it's good for you. It was good, actually. That's where Cargill, the big uh, agricultural, family-based agricultural conglomerate, got its base. It, it got the contract for taking food across the Pacific to Japan <laughs> and, to, and attempting to destroy their culture. Fortunately, Japanese culture was fairly robust and it's, it's, uh, it's not adopted these ways entirely, although it picked up some bad habits from us too. Yeah, and that's happened everywhere in the world. I mean, um, in Africa in the 70s, you know, it was to get more protein into, uh, you know, any Af every African child until Dr. T. Colin Campbell was like, wait, too much protein is not good for the body. And these kids were developing liver cancer at these, you know, profound rates. And he's like, and that's kicked off his, you know, but that's, that's when- China Project at Cornell. Oh yeah, exactly. And, um, and- you know, so this has happened all over the world where we feel we know better. So then we go into other communities and we tell them what they need. And right now, I just have to say, I'm going through a massive, um, like my cells are all changing. I'm going through a paradigm shift right now. <laughs> and what's coming up for me, just in what you've been speaking about for these last several minutes is when I first started out on this research, you know, I was, I knew there were, I knew there were other root causes to these epidemic disproportionate rates of chronic disease in BIPOC communities. And I wanted to get to the root of that. This is really what this research is about. And in doing these interviews and why I love this storytelling is you are dropping these golden nuggets that each and every one of them is a PhD dissertation in itself. <laughs> so I just, so what's happening to me is I'm like sitting here going, like, how did I miss this? And how did I, because we want to solve problems as human beings, like, and I'm a fixer. I'm like, there's a problem, let's fix it. And <laughs> this is not what we do when working with indigenous communities. Um, we can't just go in and say, we are going to fix that. But it's hard for me to not be that person because it is my it is my personality to want to fix things because I want to end suffering, the unnecessary suffering that we don't need, not the positive Absolutely. suffering that we do need. So what's happening here is, and I just want to share this with people because people will hopefully listen to all 12 podcasts um, <laughs> and you'll hear these different themes that are coming up. And many of the themes that have come up are, for example, disenfranchisement from the land as a result of colonization. It is um, the putting, you know, force feeding people the wheat and the dairy and the cheap white foods, like the white sugar, white, um, you know, white flour, um, white rice that was not, you know, 
really native to these cultures. Like this is not how our indigenous communities, our BIPOC members were eating. They were eating lots of greens and lots of berries and lots of foods that grew on bushes and in, in underneath the earth. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have this refined processed food. So a lot of the conversations have been around um, these direct effects of colonization. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about here and what I, or what I'm hearing is for example, how people's credentials are the barriers to, to finding these solutions that we lack elders in our society. I think we've we lack intuition. Well, we, we've, we've downgraded certain attributes of, of ourselves that are critical to understanding why we have, that have led us by downgrading these aspects of ourselves, we have been led into behaviors that are not only destructive to others, but destructive to ourselves. Mm -hmm. For example, the public discourse in our society used to be generated by ordinary folks. It used to be, if you read a newspaper, it was this person, you know, there was a fire in this area and uh, they interviewed people in the, in the street. And uh, it was news about what's happening in the world. It was thoughts from people who had thoughts. Now, the, the, the realm of public discourse has been almost completely taken over by corporate messaging. Mm -hmm. um, I once heard that in Italy, they put all the ads into one program, and it was the most popular program in, on Italian television because they had all the best graphic designers and videographers and many actors and actresses playing roles in these ads. So they were they were captivating, they were upbeat, they were cheerful, they were they were engrossing, <clears throat> and and that's a huge mistake. That's a huge mistake to take away the stories of people in their real form and transform them into sanitized, bodlerized, uh, uh, really altered states of imagery and language that make it seem like the only way, if, if you go to a bar, first of all, nobody's drunk. Second of all, everybody's young. Third of all, everybody's beautiful. And fourth, they're all having a lovely time. Yeah. Now, go to go to any <coughs> bar in probably any large city anywhere in the world and look around. What do you see? People of all ages, including a lot of older people, people who don't look perfect. Uh, they look pretty lumpy and kind of a little bit normal. Uh, they're not all having a good time. And many of them are actually being pretty ridiculous uh, because when you consumed a lot of alcohol and other substances, you start to do things that are pretty ridiculous. And um, this this notion that you can alter the communication patterns and get away with it, you don't have to show reality in any way, shape, or form. And we've allowed this. This is part of the so-called capitalist system. If you have a lot of money, you can put ads on TV. And provided they don't advertise killing people <laughs> directly <laughs> you can you can kill them indirectly with um you know anything from cereal that's been created out of 
you know, 15 different ingredients, most of which are there to keep this package from, you know, going uh, rancid uh, early, so it'll last a long time. <clears throat> and all sorts of other features of human existence and relationships that are really so narrowly restricted to what, uh, you know, public relations people and their research have identified the things we like the most and the quickest. We like some things very quickly. <clears throat> and since ads are often very brief, we get brief ads full of things we like quickly. Hopefully the purpose is not to make us feel happy, mm -hmm. make us feel happy so we will buy something. And the stuff we buy <clears throat> is not stuff that's necessarily good for us or even good, period. It could be actually quite destructive. Well, and I'm glad... That's the environment we, we've yeah. created around this discussion about what happens in BIPOC communities. Mm -hmm. The whole <clears throat> societal framework needs to be looked at because it's, <clears throat> it's the ideas and the communication of those ideas that is the issue. And that comes from human consciousness. That's where the root of all this is. It's human consciousness. We think making money is a noble goal. There's people who are trying to interpret, reinterpret spiritual uh, doctrines as saying we should all try to be rich physically, you know, materially, um, which is absolutely the direct opposite of what these teachings say, which is do not be involved with material things that much. So anyway, I should stop. <laughs> no, you should not stop. But this is... Um... Um, By the way, I want to add one thing. Yeah. Golden nuggets, you called the things I'm saying. No, no, no. That's, no, no. That's completely wrong. Yeah. I've just lived longer and I've made more mistakes uh, than you've had an opportunity to make so far. And as a result, from the mistakes that I'm continuing to make and learning from, I mean, I don't deliberately make mistakes, but I know I make mistakes. Yes. And as I make these mistakes, uh, and understand them better, then I have an opportunity to not make them again. And so uh, well, the gold nuggets have been pruned. <laughs> well, there's a few things in that, in that in doing this research, and I'm somebody who over-researcher, like, because the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. And then mm -hmm. that messes me up for a while because I go, shit, who am I to produce a, you know, a body of research based on all this stuff that I've researched knowing, like even right now it's happening to me where I'm like, oh my God, I need to rewrite my entire dissertation. <laughs> because, <laughs> and it's messing me like right now. I'm just go. I just want to let the audience know right now, the listeners know that you know, I went down a path thinking that, you know, I had a hypothesis. I thought this is what's going to come out. I do these interviews that would reinforce the, you know, what was in the existing research, um, what, what, you know, what I've come to learn and read. And then here, all of a sudden, now I'm going to, down this other path, even in the use of the term gold nuggets, like mm -hmm. that, I'm like, I'm using this term that is based on capitalism, that we value gold over, like, <laughs> I went, I need to term, change that to like, acorns I'm picking up acorns like yeah. you know like what is you know I'm picking up like rich microbiome rich soil um Let you come by it honestly how can one in a sea of misapprehension automatically know uh, like thread your way through all that you know misdirection much of which is 
unintentional. Mm -hmm. Some of it's very intentional. The stuff that you see on television. Television is is a source of massive amounts. Te television and some segments of the internet are a massive source of misdirection. They create the impression that we have the answers we need and all we have to do is execute. Mm -hmm. Well, that isn't that isn't reality. And the fact that we would accept that it is reality creates these problems that we're we're struggling with now. I mean, as as zoologists will point out, um, I was just reading about Joel Wallach earlier, Dead Doctors Don't Lie. Mm. Uh, his book. Uh, we we are animals. So we ingest, we respire, that's breathe, we ingest, that's swallow. We digest, that means we break down and absorb ingredients from our food. We excrete, that means we have urine and stool that and, and stuff that comes out of our lungs going off into the world around us. All of those things are things we have in common with, um, we have actually 70% of the same DNA as earthworms. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot in common with a lot of living creatures. And so we need to sort of pay attention to what they do, as well as paying attention to what our friends and neighbors do who are different, we think, from us. Because when we get to know them, we discover they're not very different. In, in my psychotherapeutic ac actions, I see no difference. I see people who are intensely traumatized, systematically traumatized, if they're indigenous, if they're black, if they're Chinese, you know, if they're Asian, whatever, if they're if they're different from the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, then I see them in our culture being traumatized yeah. pretty much on a daily basis. I mean, in the States, if you uh, have equal socioeconomic status, equal position, equal income, equal, you know, housing, et cetera, et cetera, compared to your white neighbors, you still live five or six years less because you're in fight or flight mode almost constantly. You're always expecting to be discriminated against. It may not come that day or the other day, but it will come one day and probably many of those days uh, when you'll have to deal with it. I mean, it just takes a lot out of people. And then, then you throw in our, our preoccupation with capitalist acquisition of material things. And it doesn't, you know, you become, it, it's funny when you acquire a lot of material things, you become non-materialistic because you don't care about any of them. Mm -hmm. A really materialistic person has one thing of a certain category that they cherish and they love and they use and they appreciate and they don't want it to go away that's what materialism should mean but it doesn't it means you just gather in more gather in more and, and never there's no ending we just we've just set this world up and then you put people who are marginalized into that setting and of course they're having a really challenging time we it's doubly challenged <clears throat> i uh, i was talking to the guy's a social worker here um he's a black guy from the caribbean and he's always He's a great guy, great sense of humor, um, very kind of spiritual sort of fellow. And I was in a local coffee shop one day and I, I said, George, which is his name, his real name. Uh, George, we were talking about, you know, various things. And I said, George, do you ever, have you ever had to deal with racial discrimination? He said, oh yeah, every day. 
-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't like uh let me think it was more like yeah it's the sea i swim in yeah so i i met him in the restaurant the other day a local coffee shop attached to a grocery store and i went over and talked to him for a bit and um he said somebody came to him one of the dissenting folks these days who are against everything government uh so social rules they all they want is freedom and his he had a t-shirt that said fuck you that was <laughs> on the t-shirt and george said well that means you're talking about people you really like because if you really like somebody yeah. you'd like to f-u-c-k them <laughs> yes that's true <laughs> and this person just looked at him you know sort of perplexed because of course i don't think he had a broad understanding of what he was doing and then sort of twitched and said no no that's not it that's not it at all um and and started to say some of the people he didn't like and that was what this t-shirt was intended for but george says, but that's not how the that's not what the real meaning of the word is yeah it's about sex yeah and the guy stumbled away that George, I said, George, you have become a social agitator now that he's retired. I said, you've become a social agitator. Well done. That was fabulous. You know, so we we have illusions that we embrace all over the place. Yeah, we do. Definitely. And I mean, and you're touching on so many important parts here that, you know, as I think like a lot of researchers, especially in the social sciences domain, they often are asked to do research so you can produce a public policy document or a working document that some agency can use to better society, right? right? So even just thinking about this now, it's like, okay, well, what would I put into this working document? Like originally I was thinking, okay, colonization and the effects of colonization, which is more around, um, I was thinking more around the things like, well, especially the trauma, like that is something that is often not talked about when we talk about Indigenous and BIPOC healing. Now it's being addressed, books are being written about it. Um, it's being, you know, brought into our, our dialogue. Um, but, you know, but things like human consciousness, not necessarily, we're not talking about the marketing, even though we do that for sure, there's marketing um, policies in advertising and marketing that you can't, you know, sell something as one thing if it's doing something else. But what is happening is that like, you just have to open up the television and we are being told that all of this refined processed food is good for you. And it can be labeled organic and vegan, mm -hmm. even though it's, you know, it, it's refined and processed. So you did bring up that important point, discrimination, mm -hmm. you brought up that really important part. Um, and then one of the other pieces here that I want to just throw in, and again, I don't know if this is me assigning meaning to the words, which I just declare that that is what I'm doing as a researcher. But one of the barriers is I do believe we don't have enough social agitators. Mm -hmm. Yes. In our society. Well, we're getting more. We're getting more. I mean, just, just think about Greta Thunberg yes. saying in the United Nations, how dare you? How dare you treat us this way, the next generations? How dare you do that? And Greta Thunberg realized at a certain point that she was not addressing the environmental issues for people in other cultures, especially yes. in Africa and in Asia. And she's gone through a learning experience. And because of who she is, 
She does it visibly. She doesn't say, oh, well, we've changed policy. We're now going to be doing the following. You know, uh, she just says, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. I was leaving a whole bunch of stuff out. Now she's talking about environmental justice as opposed to environmental, you know, activism, uh, you know, saving the environment. No, no, <laughs> you have to include the people who live in the environment with your saving of the planet and uh really that process of i mean there's cert certain things that are happening right now that must happen daily learning we are all subject to and need to embrace the concept of learning something new every day yeah and typically something that is quite outside what we knew up until today yes and i only say that because it happens to me so often that Maybe I just want company. I want to know that there's other people having the same sense of, oh, darn, I wish I'd known that yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, my wife is very helpful. She um, says, don't natter on about that. <laughs> you know that. And, you, you know, that's a really helpful thing to have yeah. somebody who just says, oh, yes. I mean, if if too many people said I had golden nuggets <laughs> coming out <laughs> of my mouth, I would start to I would start to get nervous because I know <laughs> it isn't happening. And yet, I also know that because I have a curious mind, a fairly decent mind, and I've been around for a long time, yes, you can acquire lots of time. You know, I often think when people die, you know, our responsibility is to spend time with them before they do, with everybody. I mean, it doesn't mean that everybody's attained a great deal of wisdom. I mean, some people only acquire a little wisdom because they started off without having an opportunity to 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 grow in that respect but you know when you talk to somebody who's been around for a long time and especially if you talk to somebody who's been around for a long time who isn't part of the dominant i'll call it the dominant narrative so whether it's a racialized community or a sexual orientation or attribute that is you know not mainstream or whether it's a language that nobody else speaks i remember hearing of a of a woman who was the last speaker of um, the language of the Beothuks in Newfoundland. And I thought, oh, and how lonely, how lonely. I mean, there were a couple of people who said, teach me some of your language, but she was the last native speaker. And when she died, the whole cultural aggregation around her language was gone. Now, it's probably somewhere else. It's found in other languages and other cultures. But this homogenization process is so destructive. It can be so powerfully destructive. It just takes away that rich and, and, and enriching diversity that makes life interesting. Our senses all work by contrast. If you're looking at a blank wall, <clears throat> eventually, you won't see it anymore. Your, your retina gets flooded and it doesn't see anything. And then you turn to a, a landscape with all sorts of variations in it and it's drawn in by seeing all these detail, these different shapes and sizes of things. And uh, it, it's entranced. We are so happy when we are on mm -hmm. natural environments, unless we've been trained to believe that they're full of threats. <clears throat> And that isn't 
that's a that's a learned experience. But when you actually get into it and somebody says, you're okay, you're safe, there's no big monsters going to bite you, and you just relax, and you 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 feel the breeze, you smell the the plant smells, you look at the all the rich variation in colors and shades and shapes. Um and you look at plants that don't move, they just they're just there and they're around you and you're 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 at home i mean that's that's something so deeply embedded in in humans that every time we explore it with a research project we discover that we really like it when we're with plants and trees mm -hmm. uh, you know all sorts of natural ecosystems around us they always make us feel good you put people in a hospital you give them a view out the window that's of a natural landscape and they get better faster. They get out of the hospital faster. Yeah. No. Florence Nightingale, <laughs> open up the windows. Let's bring in the fresh air. Let's bring nature into the hospital. <laughs> and the people heal. Like she, like, come on. Like we've known this stuff. But again, and oh yeah, go on with that. You feed them and you feed them <clears throat> proper food. My profession learns zero. You said four hours of training in, in a four-year medical program. I got exactly that. Yeah. There was a, a very attractive young dietitian at the Royal Victoria Hospital who probably was there because the women's pavilion there, uh, the director of the program there liked her. She was very cute. She was very, you know, attractive. And so he allowed her, he allowed her to talk to medical students, uh, you know, the medical students in groups of small groups and would talk to them about basic nutrition. I didn't learn a thing from her because I was enmeshed in this idea that this was a complete waste of time. I learned everything about nutrition when I graduated from medical school, and especially when I got away from the big urban setting in Montreal, where I finished my training and did my first three years of practice. When I came to a small town, I started to say, this is time for a change. I was already writing a paper that challenged some of the information that we have in the medical profession. But um, I, I, I branched out. I, I, for a variety of reasons, I branched out into all sorts of exploration and suddenly realized, oh, how much I don't know, especially about food and physical activity and mental, you know, content. Um, and I've spent the last 42 years here, 43 years now, um, putting all, learning more and trying to put what I learned into practice. And Food, physical activity, you know, what we ingest, the the um, physical activity we engage in, and the content of our minds and our consciousness. That those are the three, you know, things that you they're there all the time. You have to deal with content or activities or whatever involved in all three areas. And when you come to hospitals, they're really when it comes to nutrition, they're they're a bit of a cesspool. Mm -hmm. They contain food that is so transformed from its useful form that uh, it's more of a tribute to the intrinsic value of foodstuffs than it is to human intervention that people do survive their hospital experience as far as nutrition is concerned. But they don't necessarily survive very well. They survive, but they don't thrive. They don't yeah. do really well because the food is poor and that's because doctors have no clue about nutrition. I mean, you have to learn extracurricularly 
if you want to know anything about food. And that's what I did over many years. Um, also le learned about how our minds affect what we choose. And if we have a fixed idea in our mind that food's irrelevant, what do we do about food? You say, well, just give them a regular diet. What's a regular diet? It's little plastic containers yes. with stuff that's been, you know, transmogrified by a variety of industrial processes and plates, often with food that's been cooked somewhere else, frozen, transported, thawed out, heated up, and put before you. Uh, and the food comes from sources that are often very ill-defined and if you actually knew where they came from you might be just a bit horrified mm -hmm. the chief the head dietitian at our hospital when i first arrived in in the early 80s uh i went to a, a hospital uh board meeting the, the managing board of the hospital and she was doing a presentation she said i'm proud to say that in 10 years the cost of meals per serve per meal in our hospital has gone down. It's gone from 1050 to 975 or something like that. And she was, and everybody gave her a round of applause as if the cheaper the food was, the better the hospital was. Uh, it was astonishing that she could even get away with saying something like that. And when I presented to her the issue of dietary fiber having a role to play in diabetes, she said, yeah, I've, I've heard about it, but it's, not really true. And I showed her some research and she said, yeah, yeah, that's that's okay. But I think the Canadian Diabetic Association guidelines, which we're still saying, white, you know, white bread is is okay. Um, or fiber is irrelevant. Uh, we're still satisfactory as far as she was concerned. So I'm sorry, I'm nattering on. No, this is like, I just want you to keep going, especially because you are a medical doctor who's trained in the medical system. You just announced that you pulled research out that was written by your peers, presented it to a dietitian. Um, you know, you're saying, hey, you know what? There's research that shows mm -hmm. that fibers, and then that person just chooses to say, nope, we're fine the way it is. And I mean, even just, and people need to hear this story because everybody listening to this you know the experience of being in a hospital and seeing the food that's served there. But also as an individual, where do we go to when we get sick? We go to our medical doctors who are not trained in nutrition. So we have this, too many people still believe that our doctors have the answer to our chronic diseases, you know, like, to, yeah. in, so we're going to them for the solution, but the solution is not in a pill. It's not in a bottle. It's not in surgery because we, that's what we've been using for the last hundred years. And the chronic disease rates are going up every single year. We're seeing diseases okay. that never existed in three years old and five years that it's only true. existed populations, 60 years old and above 80 years or didn't yeah. even exist. So yeah. to have you say what you just said is so important because I can say it. I've taught people this, but I'm not the medical doctor. I'm just, you know, people see me as a conspiracy theorist when I tell them that <laughs> doctors don't barely get any nutrition training or they go, that's not possible. And then what do they do? They run to their doctor and say, I want to change my diet to healthy eating. And their doctors say, your diet has nothing to do with your disease. And this was not just in the seventies. This is happening oh, today. I get patients coming currently. Back. Um, yeah, I get patients coming back from rheumatologists, from 
uh, surgeons even, from uh, cardiologists uh, saying, saying the same thing all the time. Now, what's different now is there one or two times they come back and they report something like somebody says you need to increase your omega-3 uh, content in your diet. Well, they've learned that from a study that took omega-3 fatty acids as a separate entity all by itself out of the food and said, well, we the study showed that if you supplement your diet with omega-3 fatty acids, certain cardiovascular benefits follow. But what about just eating the food? <laughs> you exactly. know, what about how to find really interesting foods and ways of preparing foods that make it taste totally delicious. I mean, if you just scarf down a bunch of omega-3 fatty acids from a bottle, you're not gonna have a lot of fun. And if you don't have a lot of fun doing something, then you're probably not gonna go on doing it. I mean, ask any child who's been had their mouth pried open and somebody pours some ugly tasting medicine down their throat. First of all, they'll hate all medicines thereafter. Second of all, if you name the one that you were given, uh, you're going to have a bit of a, a fight or flight reaction. And then if you look at the person who forced you to take it, which might well be apparent, um, you're going to think very differently about them from that day forward because yeah. they say they're only there to love you. But by golly, that was not an act of love as far as you knew as a child. So there's, I, I see the the critical importance of having the kinds of discussions that you and I are having today and we had on the on the food conversations show they're about what's actually going on in the world as opposed to the sanitized version of what's going on it doesn't mean that there are not good things happening and in fact one of the problems we have is the public media are saturated with disaster events because that sells they say sells newspapers uh yeah. Not that there's that many newspapers as paper around, but that's that's the argument. It sells papers. Well, I think that's simply because many reporters who are very good at report, reporting what they're told don't have a creative imag imagination when it comes to saying, how do we make food uh, not just interesting in you know the good housekeeping diet section or or you know a recipe section but also interesting so that people understand there's good things and bad things in food and food that tastes, when I was brought up, food that tasted good was bad for you and food that tasted bad was good for you. Uh, that's because I had a, an English colonial family background and you, and the, the peas weren't cooked until they were gray yeah. and mushy and the beef had to be full of red serum le leaching out of the meat and red in the middle, or it wasn't, you know, the right kind of culinary situation. Uh, we There's so much we can do and is already available to us. Once we get away from this corporate dominated advertising BS uh, and start valorizing accurate information about food, about our habits of dismissing some people on very superficial grounds, our habits of 
using violence to make a point, something that's going on in Ukraine right now, but it also happens all over the world. Good Lord. I mean, the war in Ukraine is a product, the byproduct of massive distribution of arms of all sorts to all parts of the world in enormous quantities. Yeah. What happens if everybody's got a gun? <laughs> well, somebody sooner or later is going to pull the trigger. That's what happens. Yeah. So, we, we've created these monsters out of our own misguided intention to do what we thought was right in the world. You know, I'm sure the colonizing, you know, sailors and, and uh, soldiers thought that they were doing something good because they had a very narrow vision of what good meant. But we now know they're wrong. We now know they did some horrible things. And we shouldn't be perpetuating what they did. We should be reanalyzing it and very much altering it back towards where it needs to be which is the grounded experience of all humanity you know where and then and again i would say our indigenous uh friends and neighbors and ancestors they had it they had a right relationship with the planet they weren't proud they were they were respectful of the planet and its contents they didn't just wreck it and say well yeah but we know better yeah. they said, as somebody once said in a an email address mother nature bats last yes <laughs> well and that is you know brings us back to you know as we come close to wrapping this up here um unless you want to keep going because i'm not going to cut you off at all by any means but i also want to respect your time as a well, participant I, I wanted... in this research <laughs> I, I wanted to add one anecdote that that I found startling and discouraging. We lived in Montreal for three years. Well, actually for seven years, but uh, I practiced for three years. And we got to know a family that were refugees from Uganda where Idi Amin had done some horrible things. And, you know, it just shows black, white, brown, green, whatever. Colors are trivial. The black uh, Idi Amin was a horrible guy he was an army officer who took over the, uh, uganda's government and and one of his things was uh rejection of the the citizens of uganda who were of indian origin mm -hmm. um and he did it uh because they had uh a, they were very successful they were very good business people and they had a strong tradition in the indian community of going into business and and knowing how to do it um and they, he treated them the way uh, European society treated the Jews, who were also mm -hmm. um, sort of from the beginning rejected because they were different culturally and religiously. And there was this whole narrative from the Bible that, you know, the Jews killed Jesus and all this kind of nonsense. So <clears throat> they, he expelled them. And this family that we got to know came here. I think my wife worked with one of the members of the family at St. George Williams University, part of Concordia now. And they told us about looking for a place to live. And they would phone up a place and they had these wonderful, um, smooth English accented ways of speaking. Hello, my name is, and, and I, I don't even know they named themselves, but they said, we would definitely like to have a place to live. And we understand you have a place available. Would it be possible to come and see you? And the person, oh yeah, absolutely, come on over. We got you know six rooms and you know whole upstairs, and you could come and sure, happy to happy to see you. They'd come and they'd knock on the door. The door would open, and the person who is almost always white, 
not always French Canadian, but more often likely to be, take one look at this. Oh, I'm sorry, the place isn't available anymore. Somebody just took it. I mean, they could see the facial expression on this person change from this opening door smile of welcome to this look of apprehension and then sort of a cold sort of, mm, yeah, no, sorry, the place is taken. Yeah. No, 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 we, ha we have no rooms available anymore. The door was not always slam, but the psychology was the same. Yeah. And that, I mean, the, for me, it was sort of incomprehensible then because I wasn't as thoughtful about some of these issues, but it was, it was horrendous. Mm -hmm. It was horrendous. Uh, I mean, of course, I put myself in the feet, shoes. You know, the shoes of the of the people doing this, the the, the family. There were such there were such lovely people. They, I mean, they were quote well educated. They were very they were civilized. Sorry, civilized. <laughs> civilized. <laughs> These are words that are synonyms for really nice people. Yeah. We're just really nice and developed people. Yeah. And it was just such, and that's just one example. Of course, there's lots of examples I've come up, you know, yeah. over the years. And I, right now I'm looking, for example, as a practitioner of retiring. And I've uh, decided that, my profession is now so preoccupied with this one problem per visit and five to 10 minute visits that yeah. I'm not comfortable with that anymore. And I never was, but I'm, I'm really handing my patient, you know, panel, it's called a panel now, having my patients over to somebody who does that would, would just dis, be such a disservice. So I'm looking at a nurse practitioner and the, I've been in extensive dialogue with one particular nurse practitioner in training who's about to finish her training She's an experienced nurse who's gone on to three more years of training as a nurse practitioner. And she learns about nutrition. <laughs> she learns about nutrition. Yeah. And um, we we're talking about the layout of the office. She was looking at my office and she said, well, I'd change things so that I would have my chair nearest to the door. Mm. And suddenly this big light went on in my head. And I realized she's a young woman. She's quite attractive. Mm. and she's you know quite slim i mean she's all the all these attributes that are supposed to be beauty beauty yeah and she said i i want to be near the door because what if some guy yeah you know, decides to hit on me or is abusive towards me because i'm a young woman and he he feels he can get away with giving me the biscuit yelling at me or you know being rude and I've never had to deal with that. I'm six feet tall. I'm fairly fit. Um, I'm male. I don't have any hair, so I look like I'm wise. Yeah. <laughs> As one landlady once said, grass never grows on the busy street. She was Jewish in Montreal. And uh, I've never had to deal with that. Yeah. My wife went to a bank manager many years ago to ask for a loan to go through university to do some of her university she went back she just wore him down she went back probably a dozen times and asked him again he said well you don't have the credentials you don't have the collateral you don't have this you don't have that eventually he just gave up he said okay you can have the loan but that was because she developed a relationship with him over time 
that she had to psychologically speaking crawl on her hands and knees mm -hmm. i mean she didn't really she said i am worthy and you should give me the loan but she, she had to she had to go through all these all these machinations i went to a bank manager in montreal to get a small loan to pay for the first new car i'd ever owned and that's all i wanted and he practically leaped over his desk to shake my hands and say oh you need more money you want more don't you you want a bigger loan i said no i just want enough money to pay for this car he said no 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 you need more money what what about your you know vacation what about buying a fur coat for your wife if you'd only known how irrelevant that was yes uh, neither of us would have <laughs> wanted to wear it and uh you know it 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 just it was uh, it was embarrassing i was embarrassed that he was so eager to give me money yeah because i actually knew about her story but i also knew about so many stories of so many people i mean i can't imagine if you're that you know those the, the grandfather and his granddaughter in vancouver who went to a bank to open an account for her and got you know the some bank person became suspicious and and the next thing you they called the RCMP and said this is an impersonation and they were taken off in handcuffs in handcuffs you know a, a 65 year old grandfather and his 13 year old granddaughter were taken away in handcuffs in a paddy wagon you know every story like that should make the listener feel something deep inside this is this is absolutely and utterly wrong. And if they and, and that's why I say creative imagination is really important. If you have the creative imagination to see that what you think is normal may not be, just that seed of doubt in your own mind. Somebody tells you a story, this is the answer to all your problems. Well, if it if they if they're overly salesman salesperson like like this is exactly what you need you don't need anything more than this if you just say yeah 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 just tell me come down to earth and talk about this realistic and if they don't say you're hiding something and i don't necessarily want to buy your narrative because you're not telling me the whole story if you start to ask questions and, and that's what psychotherapy is all about it's the person healing themselves by hearing their own reality in answer to your questions. And so it's, it's a bit of an art to actually the right questions, but the insights come from the person who's getting therapy. And if we had that attitude towards ourselves, we heard something, we felt something, I wonder why. I wonder if this is really accurate. Then we wouldn't be able to go up to somebody who we've never met, who's got different skin color, obvious, you know, signals of a certain kind of sexual orientation that is not, you know, whatever it's, I can't remember what, what the so-called normal is supposed to be, but it's probably heterosexual in some fashion. Anyway, who knows what it really is anymore. But the point is, if they, if they have these signs, they're, they're, you know, they got bunches, piercings and tattoos. <laughs> when I first started in practice, there were no tattoos, except if you were from an ethic culture far away now <laughs> i can't when i examine somebody it's like opening up this this ocean of tattoos some people are just like covered they're covered and it's all an expression i mean some of it's just sheer vanity but but a lot of it is 
you know, okay, my body is no longer this, this um, thing that I don't pay any attention to. My body is going to be an expression of who I am. Yes, very much. And so. my hair color. <clears throat> One of my 65 year old patients had pink, a big splash of pink in the front of her head. And I said, Woo, this is cool. <laughs> this is, this is interesting. And she said, yeah, I was at my hairdressers and she said, what about this? And she said, I've never done it before. Uh, she said, but, 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 but sure. Let's do it. And away it went. And she came in to see me and, and I, <laughs> I was just, I was just intrigued and sort of delighted because, because it was like, okay, you're stepping out of the normal boundaries in this area, very superficial in a way but it's a sign that there's something in your mind that's moving well i love where this is going because it's a it's actually these last few stories are so important actually for mm -hmm. identifying because of course i'm listening to like what are the things that are stopping us from being truly collectively healthy mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. starting where i believe we do need to start because there's so much there's so much healing that first needs to be taken place because we're only as healthy as the sickest members of our society. Mm -hmm. And right now we've identified, it's been identified that indigenous members, BIPOC members are the ones that technically diagnostically are the sickest with relation to diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all of this dying earlier, everything. So of course that is a place we definitely need to start and of course there's so much learning that comes back to that going back to what you said learning right. from our elders resurrecting that knowledge that is this being lost like we cannot like when you said losing the language like in newfoundland losing that last language being that one person who is so lonely what does it feel like to be a bipoc member who has knowledge that these herbs heal people has knowledge that the soil heals people that has knowledge that we are all interconnected and we are losing that mm -hmm. and how lonely must that feel mm -hmm. but what you've just said with these last few stories and what i pulled out from that is what's called narrative medicine mm -hmm. and yeah, there's, there's a current in medicine called narrative medicine and it is and there's books written on this but then yes. you brought me back to that 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 we have one of the barriers is not being curious and it's the opportunity to be more curious. It's the opportunity to tell more stories and listen to when the patients come in, listen, why is your hair pink? Why do you have that tattoo? Tell me more about, you know, the foods that you eat as opposed to saying, okay, what's the problem? Here's the solution in five and a half minutes to seven and a half minutes. Maybe that the odd doctor might go 15 minutes long, and, but that's not long enough. What <laughs> right? the nurse practitioner trainee who's coming to, I hope one day take on my patients uh, said, I spent an hour with this guy and I really liked it. And I learned a lot of stuff that he hadn't told anybody else because he never had time to do it. I want to say one thing though, and that is, and <laughs> even my asking you to, to allow me to say one thing is, is playing into this problem. And that is that men are far more likely because of culturation and also because of male genetics and too much testosterone, that kind of thing, we're inclined to be the ones who are enunciating what we think is the truth yeah. and women up until very recently have been indoctrinated to believe that they were the ones who would listen 
oh my goodness that's so interesting i didn't know that oh you're so smart you're so big you're so threatening i don't really know if i would trust no you don't go there they they go to the oh thank you for helping me understand this truth that i had no idea about and now that women are saying hold on We've been thinking all the time we were saying that you had some brilliant ideas. We were thinking that you're a bit of a bombast Mm -hmm. and probably not that bright. And the only way I could relate to you was by doing this to you because, and it worked like a hot damn because all I had to do was flutter my eyelids and say, oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Um, I think more women should be in more positions of power and responsibility throughout human culture around the world. It's always been that way prior to this, you know, moving into the, through the Neolithic revolution and the, and the industrial agricultural, agricultural revolution. Before that, women were listened to. After that, women were suppressed. And so, you know, who holds up half the world? Well, <laughs> that half of the world, I think, in positions of responsibility does a better job. That energy balances far more effectively men trying to, you know, soften our tone. I mean, we need to soften our tone. We need to also refuse to avoid, refuse to uh, utilize threats and or physical violence, of course, that naturally is out. But we need to stop saying, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to threaten you with punishment and it's going to be nasty. We should say, I don't agree with you. Tell me why you think what I'm saying isn't as effective as what you're saying. We need to just do that. And women do it much better. Mm -hmm. And so that energy brought into public discourse, I think is a critical stage that we have to work on. It's just as big as BIPOC. It's bigger in a way because there's... (laughs) There's women on, on in every culture. That's the only reason we're here. My well, mother. Well, and again, this is one of those uh, those acorn nuggets that I I am picking up, and I put that down because you did. You told a story about discrimination, so not on race but on gender, and you know, talking about your wife. I had that exact same experience as well, trying to get a loan, and my husband was like, they had no financial acumen and they're like we'll give you all the money you want but me fight for it and that's happening today in like this day and age but listening to our grandmothers mm-hmm. so not just women you know and not you but our elderly grandmothers as well and we are in a society where we think the young 20 year olds have all the answers through tech and through you know and and listening to and it's really a lot of men in tech um you know right now and so it's you know listening to our grandmothers but Mm -hmm. then that brings me back to what you said earlier is that it's normal for humans to be afraid of and to enter into fight and flight and to be scared Mm -hmm when it comes to other ways of knowing, other ways of living, other ways of practicing. So one of the barriers there is also to address the fact that we don't need to be afraid. Exactly. Right? We don't need to be afraid of the things that we don't 
know that's not scientifically proven that, you know, because again, the whole doctrine of science is something that is human made, made by men generally, um, Mm -hmm. and made by white men, like the scientific method was not proposed by, um, you know, an indigenous member from six nations in Ontario. But, you know, so it's to let's, let's start to figure out how can we get curious about that, explore that not be afraid of that. And it doesn't mean you know, when I tell people we need to go back to food as medicine, I'm not talking about going back to hunting and gathering. No. Right? Like, don't be afraid that we of have to go back to sleeping not. on the earth, even though sleeping on the earth might be a good thing for you. But, <laughs> you know, like, let's actually just get curious and let's say, okay, let's explore these other ways of knowing. Yeah, I would, I would agree very much with what you said. I would endorse the notion that when we stop drawing lines in our minds and saying what's on that side is wrong what's on this side is right and we allow that consciousness never worked that way anyway Mm -hmm. i mean if you if you were in a foraging community and somebody said you know i found a little place where a certain plant that we eat is really growing in abundance you didn't say well that can't be because i read the textbook and it doesn't grow there And in fact, Western science has done things like that. Um, There's a famous story about whitefish spawning uh, and a bunch of scientists with a bunch of indigenous guides going up to where they thought the whitefish would be spawning. Their guide said, no, they don't spawn there. They spawn over there. The scientist said, well, no, every condition here is right. They must be spawning here. And the, the guide said, no, they don't. They went to the place. There are no fish. The scientist said, oh, all right, <clears throat> let's go to where you say they spawn. I mean, they're probably not there, but we'll go anyway. And the and the indigenous folks said, well, they might not be there, but they usually are. They went to someplace at the base of a waterfall into Hudson's Bay. Lo and behold, teeming with whitefish. Yeah. And every story like that, we need so many stories like that. We mean so many you know, anecdotes, narratives, whatever you want to call them, stories. We all learn by stories. That's the only way we learn, actually, it turns out. But those stories that tell us we don't have all the answers in our dominant industrial capitalist, Caucasian, whatever it is, culture. We absolutely don't, and we never did. Mm -hmm. We just were able to fool ourselves because we had weapons that were very effective we had numbers you know the agricultural revolution in europe spawned huge numbers of people many of whom were very hungry because the food supply was outstripped by the population at certain points there was famine every year every seven years there was a famine in spain when marco polo left the country uh sorry marco polo when uh christopher columbus cristoforo colombo left Spain to come to the New World, which he, to the end of his days, thought was next to India. That's why I have the word Indians here, you know? Exactly. He was wrong until the death. And he was a terrible administrator. He was so bad that his own crew took him back to Spain in chains because he'd screwed up what he was doing in the new colonies so badly. He was a a one-shot guy. He was a one-trick pony, really good at sailing and navigating. After that, everything was 
off the charts, out of range of sheer stupidity. <clears throat> so that's what everybody's like. We have some really good traits yeah. and we have some colossal weaknesses or, or inadequacies and just bring them all together and accepting that's the mishmash that most of us are really like. Mm -hmm. is, um, enables us to then cross that so-called barrier between BIPOC communities and the rest of this sort of culture yeah. and learn. And when we learn, what we find out is how much was going on in those communities that was just like what we think is important in ours. It's just that we tuned it out. You know, if women scientists, mathematicians did great things, we we looked around for a man who was doing it and then said, and there's lots of examples of, of men co-opting the research of women and then presenting as their own. Completely. And, and then and then indigenous wisdom. I mean, indigenous wisdom has been available to us and it's very, very grounded. It, it's totally empirical. Mm -hmm. And it's also spiritual. I mean, it's yeah. it's from the top to the bottom of our knowledge base, um, enriched. And uh, and it's been there. I've I've just been reading some of the writings from a long time ago of indigenous leaders who were very fast at recognizing what they were up against in the invasion of settlers. And they knew that the numbers were so great that, you know, you couldn't go out, you know, there were young, young punks in the indigenous community who wanted to get out there and fight and said, look, it's going to turn out badly. Yeah. <clears throat> and we're going to have to wait because these guys are pretty dumb. <laughs> and it's going to take them a long time to figure out how to govern wisely. And in the meantime, you stick your neck out and they're going to blow it up. They're going to blow your head off. So don't tell them lies. Just don't tell them stuff that they, you know, they won't want to hear because they're incapable of hearing. Right. And that kind of wisdom was rampant in, in indigenous cultures when this, this uh, pernicious invasion of not only people, but, but diseases uh, swept through the, the so-called new world. I mean, even the fact the new world, what a term. And the far East, the f I always think of that, you know, uh, Western civilization. Oh, come on. <laughs> what is Western civilization? What is the Near East, the Far East? Those are all terms from European politics, for God's sake. They have nothing to do with people who live there. A remote community. What is a remote community? It's a community that's far away from where you are saying it's a remote community. But if you live in the remote community, you say there's a remote bunch of people over in that big, you know, conglomeration in North America or Europe or Japan, um, you know, and they're pretty weird. They have some strange customs and habits, but, you know, we haven't been able to get the sociologists over there to analyze them completely. And they're very strange and they have weird... When I became a physician, my background was in music creative writing. And I still to this day describe my relationship with the profession as somewhat of an anthropologist landing in the middle of a sort of isolated culture with strange kinship relationships and unusual protocols and rules and, an, and, a, and a particular vocabulary that's rather obtuse and hard to understand. Um, and it's it's and they're very, they're very um protective of of their their culture they they get very upset if you challenge their culture 
Um, I told you I read about um, Max Gerson in the Wikipedia entry. Yes. He's a man who was a physician and challenged many of the rules that physicians of the day and still today are following, but was very detailed in the work he did. He was not, he was not an unintelligent person. He really gathered strong evidence for the, for the empirical approach he used to people with, with severe health problems. And as many people do, he started with some problems of his own, which is often how people get started. And uh, the Wikipedia entry was clearly written by somebody who was very, very uncomfortable yeah. with the reality that Max Gerson presented and only could address it in hypercritical, negative ways. Now, that's exactly the experience that a person of color might have coming in to apply for a job. And when the the uh, team assessing applicants for the job, they say, well, you know, doesn't seem to know much about, you know, our stuff, you know, and just, you know, it really doesn't have the right attitude. Um, they don't today come out and say, well, he's black or he's brown or he's red or he's yellow or whatever color you don't think is acceptable. Um, they just say, well, no, I don't think he really fits with our, you know, our, our corporate culture or our government department's way of doing things. And, and, Every time I hear a conversation like that, I have this in almost compulsive urge to say, excuse me, I wonder if you thought about this aspect of this situation. You just, mm -hmm. just trying to get into their heads so they understand that they're talking nonsense as opposed to, you know, revealed truth. Um, and, and it's often very difficult. My profession is very entitled. And, and these days, it's become a cultural thing to be entitled uh, in as a physician. I mean, there was a time when if you called a physician 150 years ago in Western society, it was a sign of moral failing because mm -hmm. you weren't ready to meet your maker. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, you call your physician for everything. And, and what do we offer? Quickie visits with you know, very little content and often quite superficial solutions, if there are solutions at all. Anyway, there we are. I've, I've nattered on far too much. Yes, and, and, that, and that's and, my job. That's my job to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, nattered on and not enough as well, because so many of these pieces, it's like with every participant that I've interviewed, they are such a wealth of knowledge because they have been so curious. They have read so much. They formulated these ideas from like, you know, they haven't been sitting in front of Netflix, binge eating, binge watching, garbage put in front of them, but they've actually been literally searching, like I've been searching for, you know, to try and make sense of our world. And so one and a half hours, two hours is not enough time to even dive into the richness that exists within you and which you are a giant standing on the giants of individuals before you you know so it's looking into the past it's thinking about our present and it's looking into our future so I know I could listen to you for hours and hours on end and again you know you've left me with yet another acorn golden acorn here that is one of the potential barriers to our collective health that is that we are capable of achieving and it is entitlement 
Mm-hmm. Right. Oh. That is another barrier that is upon us right now. And you and I wrote down here because I thought about a course uh, the first course that I want to teach after this research is done mm-hmm. is called We Don't Know 101. And you know, as <laughs> yeah. opposed to we do know here, I'm going to teach you <laughs> what we do know and what you need to know. It's actually to teach people, you know what, what you're going to leave with this, in this class is we actually don't know. And so where do we need to go? You know, that is, that is, that line is, is such a powerful line that, I mean, I hope you do teach that course. I'm going to teach that course because, (laughs) because, you know, that's what Socrates did, as I understand it. He just, some, you know, callow youth, they're all men, of course, some callow youth would say something and he'd say, why do you say that? And then he said, this sentence you just said goes like this, and it leads to that. And they said, no, 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 I didn't mean that, but you didn't say that you didn't mean that. What did you really mean then? And then you know, the discourse, the dialogue would go on. Well, um, there's a there's a form of psychotherapy called uh, transactional analysis, directed by developed a guy called Eric Byrne, B E R N E, and uh, one of the books he wrote was "I'm Okay, You're Okay." That was the title of the book, and it was about you know, sort of what it says. Everybody's got some something going for them. Well, Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Uh, I got to know her through palliative care uh, mm-hmm. and a very interesting person. And we had this sort of intermittent dialogue over the years um, mm-hmm. because some of the things she came across in her work with palliative care patients was quite transcendental. You know, having patients, she'd say mm-hmm. to them, give me a sign after you've died that you're still around or that they're, you know, that, that you're still, there's still a consciousness of, associated with you and and then things would happen and she would describe them to people and in the world of medical palliative care that would excite people's anxieties because they you know what you know there's communication beyond immediate the senses it can't be that's that's evil that's that's subversive and she she got into hot water with people who should have known better giving her the biscuit but at one point I was talking to her and she said, I always want to write a book. And uh, my book would be like that book. Uh, I'm okay. You're okay. She said the book would be entitled. I'm not, she had this thick Austrian accent. I'm not okay. And you're not okay, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> and um, I, I mean, the reason I haven't forgotten it in 40 years is because, because it's a brilliant, thing it seems to me you know mm-hmm. it, it's sort of admitting that we're all working we're all works in progress we are you stop being a finished product and become a work in progress you can now start making the world a better place exactly and that is a beautiful way like this just lands with me deeply because of this work that i'm doing i've been very sensitive that as i bring up these topics around colonization and about you know, the oppressive acts that we have engaged in. And I say we, cause I'm, I'm part white, I'm part Indian, I'm part black. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I love this. I'm not okay. You're not okay, but we're all okay. But mm-hmm. in, in learning all about this for myself and teaching it to others and sharing this and bringing this up, like I'm, tre- I feel like I'm treading on this, this, this fine line, because as I bring it up, I do watch people get offended. I do watch people feel hurt. I do watch people, you know, start to say like, what are you blaming me? I still, I'm, you know, bringing up trauma 
the fact that, you know, that is one of the things that we absolutely needs to be addressed, the trauma mm -hmm. of absolutely. that, you know, of being colonized, of being, mm -hmm. you know, put in residential schools, of having your food taken away. And so then I'm very sensitive, like, okay, well, that brings up a lot to you. And, and at the end of the day, it's true. It's like, you're not okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not okay. But this fact that in recognizing that we are going to be okay. Yeah. Then you become less, I, in my opinion, then you become less dangerous. Yes. The dangerous people in the world today are the ones who are totally sure of themselves. And the people who make me most uncomfortable mm -hmm. uh, are people who are so, in their own minds, are so right yeah. that there's no room for discussion. Yeah. And, and, and it's not that they're always, I mean, they don't even think of themselves that way. They sometimes think of themselves a very open, compassionate, welcoming people. Mm -hmm. I I went around, I did a presentation on being a doctor in a small town, and I probably should go. I just look at the time, it's 20 to 11. I know. This could go on for a long time. I was like, I'm just going to let you keep going. I'm not going to, yes. I'm going to cancel all my future meetings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stop eating. Yes. I'm just, <laughs> just going to sit here. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, but um, where was I? So, well, you know what we have to, I think what we can do is we definitely have to continue having this kind of dialogue and we can do it in another podcast as well. And, you know, and especially because again, every time you say something, it brings something up in me. And one of the big things that is brought up in me is that I was sure of my, I was sure the food as medicine was the answer to our chronic disease epidemic. And it is only one little tiny yeah. part because everything that we've talked about here and in the last mm -hmm. past interviews with like all of it has to be brought in and mm -hmm. we have to be talking about all of this there is not one yeah. path and yeah. I was arrogant and I was that person you're talking about where I'm like I have the answer um but in doing this research over the last seven years I've realized I have I, I have many answers and all of them need to be addressed Nicole, you're honestly you have a you have a wonderful presence. You have a wonderful. This is my opinion. Okay, you, this is me paying you back for hitting me with golden nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> you have a wonderful presence, and you have just a natural. Your face, your demeanor, and your face and your style is just remarkably welcoming. Now, of course, women are trained to be like that. <laughs> Uh, but 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 you you know you you have it in spades and i'm sure that's why when you've approached sort of funding sources and and you know the, the people that are in whistler who come to your restaurant and that kind of stuff and the people you've approached for you know doing research projects going to grants and stuff like that i think they've sort of fallen over like 10 pins with a very large bowling ball whacking them down because you bring that you bring that you have i mean it's it's more than just appearance it's kind of an energy that people carry around and i don't know if you get it from malawi and from africa or from asia and india or from that erstwhile caucasian fella um but but you know and i i i mean i i'm not sure i could define it really very well but it's something that you kind of radiate and and I, I remember looking at your website about uh, the um, 
eat to heal or what eat is it to, oh yeah eat real to heal grounded my yeah. roots yeah and and there were words in there that made me think and you you don't have to answer this and and i could be dead wrong but suggested a certain kind of insecurity because the words were very laudatory on your mm. website about you know she's brilliant she's done all these things you are brilliant i mean you are uh, in your own way I mean like a like a star is shining in the firmament and um, I mean it doesn't mean you have all the answers and you're not okay and I'm not okay and whether it's okay all that but the what you present to the world this face and this presence you bring to the world is in and of itself very valuable it speaks more volumes than you could put into print and I I would have gone through if me, this is just me being a, an old curmudgeon. I would have gone through and taken out some of these, you know, words not brilliant. I would have said, has a great deal of experience, is uh, effective. Uh, and once you meet her, you'll really like her, <laughs> you know, or something like that. Um, because it sounded too much like marketing. Mm. And you don't, you know, your product as, I suppose all of our products is us ourselves mm -hmm. and and there's th that's the, the the marketing approach i mean i get people have taken you know how to how to get a job and they learn all these things to put in their in their cv and in their you know background <clears throat> and you know you can tell they've been trained up because they put certain things in and they're a little over the top here and a little understated there and some things are just left out uh, because no no don't put that in <clears throat> now i i just give you an example i my teeth are crooked right and they've been crooked all my life this one's a, i had to get from a store the others are all mine but they're crooked and the dentist who i see had said you know we could fix that i said well that's interesting how would you do that and you know i didn't say no i just said oh so he did a mock-up and he did mock-up is I don't have it here, but it, it's fabulous. Honestly, it's looked like I came right off a Hollywood movie set. And um, you know, they're all kind of straightened out. I mean, he only did the four ones in the front here, but it just like totally alters everything. And uh, it's done by filing down these four teeth in front to little remnants and then hooking on these, whatever, caps, veneers, whatever you call them. And I looked at it and I said, oh my God, that's amazing. And then I said, well, I'm a little nervous about what's left because you take these four front teeth and you kind of mess them up and then you put these artificial attachments and that's it. I mean, if one of them falls off, you're in big trouble, right? And my teeth right now, I, I had some very tough uh, local organic bread that had a real crust on it. And I was able to tear this crust off with, <laughs> my, with my crooked, inadequate teeth without any trouble. And um and then I went, so I went to an orthodontist because, you know, they put braces on your teeth and they pull them around. And he said, no, nah, your teeth, your gums have receded too far. I don't think we could do it. You know, they, they might risk falling out. They move over and then they get loose and whoosh, they go clunk on the floor. <clears throat> so I said, I can't do that. So, but he said, the guy who's doing your mock-up, he's great. He's a very good technician. He does a really good job. I, I'm sure he will do the best job for you. And uh, so I went back to him and then I started to have these doubts. And I thought, you know, they're imperfect teeth, you know? They don't look like, your teeth look like textbook teeth. I mean, 
<laughs> oh no, want- they're always trying to straighten my bottom teeth. Like my top, yeah, I was born with these straight teeth so I was very fortunate, but my bottom teeth, I was like, let's change those. You, and I'm you, like, no. You got fed in Malawi for the first four years of your life. That's what happened. And then That's when you what happened. added to your mother in the garden you hated to work in, yep. gave you a lot of good food. And that's yeah. when it really counts. That's when the dental oh. and your mouth, my little skinny mouth, and it shouldn't be out there, but it's not in here. So all of these changes were probably nutritionally derived. Yeah. But on the other hand, that's who I am. Crooked mm-hmm. teeth, bald head, you know, eyelids that get irritated ever since I was a kid. All those things are part of who I am. Yeah. And so are we are we do do we need to be homogenized? Anyway, I've come to the conclusion that I probably won't get my teeth straightened and all this stuff because it'll look good but i won't be able to bite into a loaf of bread like that i won't necessarily be able to take a chunk out of an apple that you know like a whole apple take a bite of it i mean i i like cutting up apples and i probably don't eat them that way all the time but nevertheless it just uh it's sort of a question of being honest and not worrying if if people and that's again the entitled caucasian male thinking you know, I can get away with it, with being a little crooked, a little irregular. But I think if I were to try and make myself more regular, I would be taking a superficial characteristic. People talk about that all the time. You know, the beautiful people get farther in life. Uh, You know, the people with, you know, a, a nice, smooth face and the thing is, you wait long enough and everything gets lumpy, wrinkled, crooked, slow, you know. Falls down through gravity. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Furniture disease. That's when your chest falls down into your drawers. Yeah. That's somebody told me. Well, that that's anyway. a great place to land to on this because I did put that down as a gold nugget earlier on is that the lack of diversity and homogeneity is one of the barriers to, yeah. to us living a beautiful, long, healthy life. And we know that, right? We need a diverse environment to be healthy, but we also need diverse cultures to be healthy, diverse thinking. It's the only way we are going to ever collectively heal is through that, yeah, that that diverse thinking. And that's exactly what you've brought today. It's a diversity of information and those gold nuggets, which are contributing to this research. And I just have to thank you so much. (laughs) I know gold nuggets, whatever. I got to call them something. I've said that like 30 times in this thing. Uh, Interesting ideas. (laughs) Interesting ideas. Okay okay things. Okay. Yes. Okay. Things that will, okay. Things that will become books and future places (laughs) and policies and all of these things, but you know, but just ideas that will help yeah. people think differently about the world. By the way, speaking in. of podcasts, uh, the guy who's doing the engineering for the show is doing the editing of the of the program. So they take out the parts where I say, and well, now we'll take a, a short break, all that kind of yes. stuff. And all the stuff he said is gone. It's because it's got to be timeless and dateless. And so uh, they may well be up. I haven't looked at the website, but um it's it's uh, called voice of the shoe swap if you look up voice of the shoe swap that gets you right there and then go to i think podcast is now at the top uh and the menu bar along the top <clears throat> and if it's not it's under programs but it's it's uh, easily available and you look around and you should be able to find them and of course you're welcome to 
distribute them wherever you wish to. All you Amazing. have to say where you've got them. And then well, we'll we're going to include all of those links in this uh, podcast at the bottom here. So everybody who's listening can find them. And then, you know, if you're looking for an amazing physician who's just about to retire, we are <laughs> going to make sure you can get in touch with Dr. Warren Bell uh, in Salmon Arm. But Warren, thank you so much for everything that you have shared today. It has been a true pleasure and I appreciate your time, your energy, your love for the world, the planet and human beings so much. Thank you for being here. You're being way too nice. You're being way too nice. <laughs> and that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a wrap. You know, I have a little thing that one of my friends said to me, very inadvertent, just threw it away. We we're talking, it was a guy, Larry Barzilai, who runs Cape BC and he said, we're talking about <laughs> you know how the leaders political leaders are being being some very stupid things and he said wouldn't you rather cast your fate with the peons than with the kings and queens of the world and i put it up there <laughs> my wife said that's really stupid you know <laughs> if you really had to live out in a field you know and be oppressed which would you prefer that or you know having living in the palace all the uh, amenities but but at a very practical level she's absolutely right but I liked it because, because it sort of makes me, it's sort of my aspirational goal to just to, to, to know a lot of stuff because I'm interested in a lot of stuff, but to just be one of the folks. Yeah. So anyway. You are one of the folks out there just and doing good things. So are you. That's what we all need to just be doing. <laughs> be one of the folks doing good things. That's Thank right. You. <laughs> Thank you, Warren. Thank, Thank you, Warren. You. I'll be sharing this podcast Thank with you, you as well. Very much. Okay. Thank okay. You. We'll talk to you very soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.